Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1970s. It's still weird saying the 70s on my talk. I've done like 100 episodes with the word 1960s, but we are moving into new territory. Uh, today, in a little while, we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 65, the book that should have ended the first volume of the X-Men. <laughs> We'll talk more about that later. Uh, this is a surprise issue by Denny O'Neill, uh, working with Neil Adams. It's pretty solid. We're going to talk about uh, everything that has to do with this book shortly. But first, I am thrilled to be uh, rejoined by my friend George Michael, who is uh, a local friend of mine. He hasn't been on the show in a long time. I'm also be, uh, thrilled to be uh, featuring two incredible writers, uh, Mr. Alex Segura and Mr. D Keith DeCandido, not DeCandido, which is what oh, I just said. DeCandido. <laughs> DeCandido. Yes. I, have, I have said your name wrong on this show so many times. So is everybody else. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, let me ask. I've let spent me, my entire life correcting people mispronouncing my last name. I expect to continue. I'm just glad I had it the right way in my mind. <laughs> uh, I'm going to let each of my guests introduce themselves. Let us know your gender pronouns and where we might know you from. Talk a little bit about your uh, career. And just because of the timing of today, we're going to ask, how did you spend your Super Bowl Sunday, is our intro question. Uh, let me start with Alex. Uh, yes, Alex Segura, he, him pronouns. Um, I'm the author of Secret Identity, a 1970s comic book noir uh, that features graphic novel sequences in the prose. And I've also written an acclaimed PI series, the Pete Fernandez Mystery Series, and a bunch of comic book stuff like The Black Ghost, uh, some work for DC and Marvel. And uh, yeah. I'm kind of all over the place in a good way, I hope. In an excellent way. How did you spend your Super Bowl Sunday, Alex? Uh, I spent it trying to meet a deadline and, uh, you know, uh, hanging out with my family. I we I kept up with the game through my phone, but I've kind of reached that. I used to be a big football fan, but uh, I've reached a point where I just don't have the ability to sit down and watch something for four hours. I completely understood. And yeah. then let's go over to Keith next. Uh, hi, I'm Keith Ari DeCandido. I have written a ridiculous number of books, or a number of ridiculous books, depending on which Amazon reviews you read. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and uh, I've been I've written about sixty novels, a hundred short stories, um, a bunch of comic books, uh, and more nonfiction than I really know how to count. Um, I uh, I've written in about more than thirty different licensed universes, from Alien to Zorro, uh, as well as uh, lots of original work, including. Uh, Fantastical police procedurals in the fictional cities of Super City and Cliff's End, and uh, urban fantasies in the somewhat real locales of New York and Key West. Um, and I also write about pop culture for Tor.com, and uh, I'm also a musician, a martial artist, and probably some other stuff that I can't remember due to the lack of sleep. Um, I actually, <laughs> normally, if you would ask me the Super Bowl question any other year, my answer would have been at the Super Bowl party that my that my friends and I always have where we get together, we usually like play poker. We have like a Texas Hold'em tournament in the afternoon and then we watch the game in the evening and it's this whole thing. This year, unfortunately, it was the same weekend as the Farpoint convention where I was one of the uh, author guests, um, uh, where I got to, among other things, debut two anthologies that both Alex and I are in, which we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll pimp that later. But uh, so I spent my Super Bowl Sunday driving home from Maryland, <laughs> which I gotta say, Driving on Super Bowl Sunday is awesome. That is the oh, easiest yeah. I-95 has ever been on a Sunday <laughs> night. <laughs> it was imagine. great. So yeah, we got home in record time. 
Awesome. Fantastic. I'm so honored to welcome both of you to the show. I'm a huge fan of both of yours. And it's just, it's amazing always to see people who are just thriving and doing oh, cool work. I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, and then lastly, my friend, George Michael. Hi. Hello. I'm George Michael Duvin. He, him. Uh, you may know me from Chad's hair. Um, I've been <laughs> He's my barber. <laughs> oh, nice. Good work. I've on a handful of Gray Malcolm episodes, including a Patreon where we talked about the changeling actually um yeah i'm a barber in salt lake city i have a little barber studio called god shave the queen it's an inclusive queer barber shop so <laughs> that's great yeah if you're in salt lake and want your hair did come see me <laughs> and oh yeah super bowl, sunday. super bowl sunday yeah uh i went to a super bowl party for the snacks mostly i'm here for the snacks i brought my switch and played smash brothers against one of my friend's kids during the play time and then we stopped and watched commercials and then three on a concert so yeah <laughs> as one does yeah. And then uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns as well. You guys know me from this show. I am a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a published author, a documentarian. Uh, I spent my uh, Super Bowl Sunday. Yesterday, I recorded the trial of Kevin Plunder, KSAR, with a group of friends for release on this show later this month. And then sometimes I try to avoid stereotypes. I am a gay man with a husband. We spent four hours catching up on RuPaul's Drag Race instead of watching the Super Bowl. So once in a while, I really lean hard into the gay stereotypes. And yesterday <laughs> was one of those days. It was our own Super Bowl. Uh, okay, I want to start with uh, Alex's book, uh, Secret Identity, today for just a moment. One of the things sure. I'm trying hard to do on this show is to interview creators from all different eras of comics and all different spaces. Uh, Secret Identity is an incredible book, fictional, of course, set in the 1970s uh, in New York City, referencing deep lore into various comic book industries. So many names are used in this book, many of whom have been on my show. And as I was reading Secret Identity, I got to message a couple of people, uh, Tony Isabella, Roy Thomas. Uh, but Linda Fight is one of the most incredible people I've had on my show. It's one of the proudest She's awesome. things I've done. And when I saw her name in your book, I, I messaged her. And she's like, oh, yeah, Alex like, reached out to me. He sent me a book. He's such a sweetheart. Oh, uh, good. Tell, uh, tell a little bit about uh, Secret Identity, uh, Alex, if you would. It was a surprisingly wonderful read. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Secret Identity is the story of Carmen Valdez, who's a queer Cuban-American woman in 1975. And we find her after she's moved to New York from her home in Miami, Florida. And she's grown up passionate about comics. It's, uh, you know, her, her dad used comics to kind of learn English uh, when they moved to Miami. And um, she's basically using a job at a third-rate publisher named Triumph Comics as her hopeful foot in the door into the industry as a creator. Um, and as we catch up with Carmen, she's having a meeting with her boss who basically tells her, no, I, I don't want you to turn in any more scripts. I, I have a plan for you. I'd, I'd love for you to be an editor down the line, but I've got I've got freelancers I need to keep busy, friends of mine that I need to keep fed. And so we catch her at a, a big low point in her um, in her life. And so despondent, she returns to her apartment and she hears a knock on the door and it's her colleague Harvey who A, should not know where she lives and B, is... <laughs> Uh, is an aspiring writer too. And he's written a few odds and ends. And he tells her, look, uh, our boss has assigned me this new series to launch. He wants to launch the first female superhero from Triumph and he wants me to write it. And I know you're a fan. I know you've been pitching stuff to our boss and um, I'd love for you to write it. The only catch is because she's already gotten this edict from her boss. She has to write the character in secret. And, you know, Harvey tells her, look, no worries. 
we'll get to the point where we can we can share your credit. But in the meantime, let's let's crank out the story. And they create this um, street level crime fighter known as the Lynx. And um, they their script gets turned in and it gets paired with the art of this guy named Doug Detmer, who's very much in the mold of Alex Toth and Neil Adams and uh, Jack Cole and Wally Wood, you know, a very super talented creator, but also, uh, you know, challenging in some ways to, you know, to, to collaborate with. And it becomes a huge hit. The only, the only problem is Harvey is murdered before the first book is released. So Carmen sees her character become this huge, you know, acclaimed comic run, but she also knows how comics work. And she knows that once the scripts run out, Somebody else is going to get the assignment. Somebody else is going to take over. So she takes it upon herself to investigate his murder, to, you know, solve, figure out what happened to her friend, but also to reclaim this character. Um, and as you read the novel, which is set in 1975 New York, you get to see glimpses of the actual Lynx comic book, which uh, were drawn by Doug Detmer, wink, wink, but actually drawn by Sandy Gerald, who is a hugely talented uh, comic book artist that I'm, I'm lucky to know. And I'm, yeah, I mean, the response has been huge. It's been uh, really a blessing to see see people respond to it. I and Linda, cool. w- Linda was one of the people I reached out to at the beginning while working on the book because... I don't know. I'm I'm not a woman. I was not alive in 1975. I, I have worked in comics, but not at that time. And so I wanted to kind of get a sense of what it was like to be a woman in comics at that time. I spoke to her. I spoke to Louise Simonson. I spoke to a lot of other pros that worked in the comic book industry at the time to just kind of get the feel, get the details right. And um, yeah. Linda being the first credited author to work at Marvel Comics, that was. Yes. You know, she also wrote the backup feature uh, with Marvel Girl in the 1960s run, which we. Oh yeah. So, uh, I'm gonna. I've been told by multiple writers that they hate when I do this, but I'm gonna read one paragraph of your book out loud. <laughs> okay. Because it's just so telling, and again, this is set in a fictional universe, but I think it really encapsulates what a lot of creators go through even now in uh, in a very large comic book industry or anyone who's trying to follow their dreams and do big things. So I'm not going to give context. I'm just going to read one paragraph quickly. Okay. Molly had ruined a special moment, a connection to a time when comics were a dream, an intangible thing that got her through her own day-to-day. Now working in comics was her day-to-day. She saw how the sausage was made. She got the nasty calls from the creepy freelancers looking for work who managed to also awkwardly flirt with her. She dealt with the desperate freelancers showing up at first light on Friday, hoping to get their check to pay off their alimony, child support, or loan sharks. She saw how creative efforts got smooshed and squeezed into generic shapes only to become something else, something bad. She watched as the older generation got shoved aside, nothing made or earned from decades of creative labor, just because their style was no longer de rigueur. Carmen saw it all from her small perch outside Carlisle's office. She was no longer a fan, but she was barely a professional. And that stung in a way Carmen had not fully realized, but felt. It was even worse because she was hopeless, pounding her fists against a window that let her see beyond. But the glass was so strong, there was no way she could break through. Fuck. (laughs) Tell me me your thoughts on exploring the industry from this particular lens. I mean, it was, you know, Carmen's story and my story are not completely dissimilar. You know, I, I moved to New York and my youth and worked in marketing and publicity and kind of got to peek in and see the creative process from an interesting perspective. And um, yeah, I think we all go through that moment. I'm sure Keith has felt it too, where you go from fan to professional. I remember when I started working at wizard, which was like the entertainment weekly of comics for a long time. And I came in as this wide eyed fan in my first meeting. Um, they spoiled a huge X-Men storyline for me. It was a Zorn storyline. 
you know, they were like, oh, yeah, and Zorn's Magneto. And I was like, Zorn is Magneto? What the? <laughs> like, and you just you just kind of make your bones and you just start. You just re- see that there is a, a process behind these stories that used to that captivated you. And you, you try to find. Except he wasn't Magneto. We call him Zornito often. Yeah. Yeah. Zornito. Yeah. (laughs) You know, except uh, I guess you have to find the new normal, which is a way to embrace and enjoy these stories while still being part of the industry. And it's, it's cool. It's just a journey. And and so I I wanted to capture a little bit of that for Carmen as well. Yeah. And Carmen is responsible for putting out a book in this. You watch the corruption behind the scenes and how things are changed and people who are less talented are given opportunities and, how something comes out and it's kind of wonky and pushed and different people take over the different characters and play with the toys in different ways. Like, yeah. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the, uh, Sandy, who is an amazing artist, said the hardest page for him to draw of the Secret Identity sequences was the one where it was the hack team that took over for a spell. And he he was like, he, he found it really challenging to draw worse, you know? And I think... Uh, <laughs> It was just one of the fun parts of the the process because we had to show like what happened when somebody else took over. But I, you know, I think that's just it's part of the game. You know, you, sometimes you get feedback that's very helpful and it makes your work better. Sometimes you get feedback that changes what you were trying to do. Very rarely, but it happens. You get feedback that you have to kind of handle that makes the project worse. And you know, you just kind of roll with it. As a pro, you just you deal with it and you you move on to the next thing and 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 kind of maintain your your part of it and uh that's i think the hard part and it's it's harder earlier on i think as you get older you you kind of just learn how to jump through certain hoops yeah uh keith as a person who has worked in many fictional universes and interfaced with a lot of uh places peripherally and directly uh, tell me some of your thoughts on this same topic um well i mean the, first of all that paragraph that you read um was really familiar um, <laughs> I, I, I started out in the in the business as an editor um I, I i did some work uh for library journal magazine i worked for library journal magazine for a couple of years and then my first work in the genre was as uh an, an associate editor for the late byron price who was a book packager yeah. um and so i've i've been ex- in exactly that spot carmen was in um where where you know you're, you're the low person on the totem pole in the publishing company and you are not only seeing how the sausage is made but going through the grinder yourself off half the time and and you know and and at that point you know until i sold i sold my first fiction while i was working for byron but uh uh uh, but I wasn't a professional. I wanted to be a professional fiction writer, but I wasn't yet when I first started. And um, and and yeah, that 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 feeling was was really uh, encapsulated perfectly in that. By the way, somehow I missed this nuance. The the I've, I've been hearing about Secret Identity. I have not yet read it because my time for leisure leader no does not exist. <laughs> um, I did. I somehow missed that it took place in New York in the 1970s. I grew up in New York in the 1970s. I hope it and it's passes one of my the favorite. sniff test. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but it's also it's an era I love to revisit both as a reader and as a writer. Um, one of my favorite books of mine that I've written was a Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel called Blackout, which took place in 1977 in New York. It focused on the uh, the Slayer that Spike killed on the subway uh, mm-hmm. that was established in, in uh, Nicky Wood, and uh, it was one of my favorite books that I've ever written. It was like you know reliving my childhood, and. Um, and I love that, you know, for that matter, um, the the animated film, the the Batman animated film that they did with Richard Dragon and and them that took that was basically a '70s action movie was like my favorite of DC's animated films. Oh yeah. So I, now I'm like, I gotta read this book. 
So oh, I hope you like it. Yeah, I have I have a crime novel named Blackout too. That's so funny. I mean, we're not unique in that. There's many. Well, yes, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I cool. called it Blackout because it took place during the blackout in 1977. Yeah. It was not subtle at all. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's at least three Marvel supervillains named Blackout. <laughs> I, I don't think there are that few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is one of those wild moments, and this has happened multiple times on my show, where I know the two of you have worked together, but this is your first time meeting, which is really yeah. to, to see it's that funny. happen. Um, I'm going to share my wild journey to uh, Keith DeCandido for just a moment. <laughs> I launched a Patreon on my show where we are covering the histories of obscure characters. And eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, eventually we put these out on the main show. One of the characters I wanted to feature, because we're doing a lot of the 1960s stuff, is the Changeling, who's the guy in the funny purple hat who was part of Factor 3, and he dies in Professor X's place, and then he becomes part of the Exiles, but it's a different guy. And anyway, uh, he was more on the animated series. A lot of people know him better from that. He has a wild comic book history. So George Michael and I did a deep dive into the history of the Changeling. And despite the fact that I had worked on the Marvel handbooks, I was not aware of a book that was published, an anthology book in the early 2000s called X-Men Legends, in which there's just a bunch of random X-Men stories written by uh, a bunch of different prominent authors. One of them is a deep dive into the life of the Change League. And we I literally read your entire passage out loud uh, on my Patreon episode about the Change League. And then FanX was shortly after that. And I was like, oh, Keith is here. So I walked over to Keith at FanX and I was like, um... So you wrote this book 25 years ago, and I would love to have you on my show to talk about it when we finally get to X-Men 65, which is the big revelation that Professor X is alive. Uh, so Keith, I know you've written a lot of things, but uh, tell me a little bit about your work in the X-Men world, if you would like. Absolutely. I uh, Again, this was part of when I was working for Byron Price. I uh, the, the big project I worked on there was... Um, uh, when Mar when Byron got the license to do prose works based on Marvel superheroes, uh, so we did a very extensive line of Marvel-based uh, novels and short story anthologies. This was from 1994 until uh, 2000. Um, the, the that line that I ran, uh, and then Byron did a few more books uh, after I left the company that was under a different publisher for reasons way too complicated to go into now, but. Um, it involved bankruptcy and 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 not paying people and and the collapse of the CD-ROM market, but that's a story. Well, as, as a quick aside, uh, Aconite Books is doing a lot of this type of work right now, and we featured several yes. of the writers from Aconite on this show. But this, yep. it's the, that contract has been with other companies over the oh, years. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we uh, we 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 had it then, but uh, yeah, and and some actually at least at least one of Aconite's writers, uh, Richard Lee Byers, also worked with me on the on the Marvel books back. Okay, in the day. yeah. Um. But anyway, um, so we actually, I, I, I like to joke that uh, prior to 2008, it was the most uh, complex uh, non-comic book version of Marvel superheroes because all the novels were interconnected and, and took place in their same little, like, separate, slightly off continuity uh, from the comics, but, but were all consistent with each other uh, until 2008, and then Kevin Feige went and stole my thunder, the bastard. But... Um, <laughs> Anyway, the uh, so we did a bunch of anthologies. Um, the Ultimate Spider-Man. Uh, By Byron was big on using the Ultimate, and this was before the the Ultimate Comics line started. Uh, so we did we did a Silver, Silver Surfer. We did the X-Men. We did the Ultimate Supervillains, which was actually which was supposed to tie into a CD-ROM game that never that then never got published. Um, 
uh, The Ultimate Hulk. And then we did additional, uh, a second Spider-Man anthology, which uh, we tied into the Untold Tales of Spider-Man um, comic book that was going on at the time. And then uh, we did a second X-Men anthology, which we called X-Men Legends, which actually came out in 2000, uh, partly to tie in with the movie. And um, we want we wanted to do is cover the entire history of the X-Men up to that point. So uh, stories took place at different time periods. Uh, one of my favorites, actually, was a story that uh, Jennifer Heddle wrote that uh, uh, focused on Rogue and Carol Danvers and and the 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 weird dialogue that was going on in Rogue's head between those two personalities. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and it took place specifically at a time when she was struggling with that during uh, during the Claremont Silvestri run on the on, on the book. Uh, but what I wanted, I wanted to do something with the Changeling because nobody had. <laughs> this, I mean, this was a guy who was basically retconned into being the guy who actually died in Professor X's place. Um, and, and I've always been fascinated by, you know, what life would be like for somebody who could change their shape. Because what that does to their sense of identity. Um, and, and, and how they would, you know, turn out. And... Uh, <laughs> so so I, I basically I pitched Diary of a False Man which was uh, and, and it was done as Jean Grey finding uh, the Changeling's diary after he died pretending to be Professor X and, and finding out who he was because she had no idea neither did anybody else um, and it was just basically the Changeling's origin story and also spackling you know, there, there were a lot of inconsistencies because of the retcon uh that needed that that were kind of spackled over uh, by by both Denny O'Neill and Roy Thomas, and uh, I tried to reconcile them as best as I could uh, to make it all make sense as to you know why you know how the changeling got in there and and all the rest of it. It's um, uh it's really good, and we covered this in the changeling episode, but it answered all of the questions that I had about the changeling and made him <laughs> a character that I want to see used now because of what you did with him. He's not yeah. the weird guy in the purple hat. He's a character yes. who has a history and a name and all these things that make him matter to the world. And he's the X-Men's first martyr, which is, of course, uh, yeah. often uh, that's often given to Thunderbird. Uh, but it was actually the Changeling who died first. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, so this idea of delving into X-Men history, let me hear a little bit uh, about, uh, for, and this is a question for all three of you. What's your connection to the X-Men franchise? Uh, as a fan or as as part of your story as up and coming writers well i i mean i with for me it was just as a fan when i first started reading marvel stuff when i was a kid um i i what actually what introduced me to the x men first back in the mid seven mid to late seventies uh they put out a bunch of uh trade paperbacks called origins of Marvel comics and son of origins of Marvel comics uh bring on the bad guys and the superhero women and i I loved those books. And that was my introduction. The, the, I think it was the Son of Origins books had had the X-Men in it. And that that was what introduced me to them. And then I started buying Marvel regularly. And it was very jarring to pick up X-Men number 148 uh, and see a completely different group of people. <laughs> like, the, there were only two characters from that original group that I recognized. One was the Angel, who, was, who left the group in that e issue. Uh, Cyclops, who was stuck on an island with some blonde chick. Uh, and, we love and, her. We love her. <laughs> oh no, I love her too. But that's all to me as a nine-year-old or whatever. I was, you know, I was just some blonde chick, and uh, and 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 Jean Grey was dead, and I'm like, what the hell? Um, but I loved it, and and I wanted to see, and I, you know, I filled in with back issues and stuff. I I've always loved uh, 
you know, from the beginning, I loved the X-Men and I, I really enjoyed uh, them in particular when I when I first did my deep dive into Marvel around 1981, 82, 83. That 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 was when I started reading. Um, and that was that was a good time to be reading Marvel comics. That was when, you know, uh, Claremont, Claremont was on the X-Men, Byrne was on Fantastic Four. Um, the Spider-Man books were, were really good at that point. Uh, first Jim Shooter, then Roger Stern on Avengers. Uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it was it was it was a great time. Um, so that was that was my connection. I always I thought the X Men quickly became one of my favorite books, partly just because of all the really really cool themes it dealt with. Yeah, um, and it was just well written. Yeah, Alex, how about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was really fandom was the first entryway into the X-Men, especially, you know, the Marvel cards that were coming out in the early 90s, I think yes. 1990, 91, Series 1, I remember, that's how I learned about the X-Men, but also, I was so baffled, I remember being so confused about why there was an X factor like I was like why would the original X-Men not be X-Men and why are they not on the X-Men now and I, I was, was picking... reading those books and I'm still baffled by it yeah I mean <laughs> that initial X factor run I'm sure has inspired much debate it still confuses me but um, um and I remember I was it was a time where Marvel was obviously running the new X-Men stuff which was for me I think Extinction Agenda was what was coming out around that time and my first X-Men comic was you know they say jump in and it's okay if you don't know what's going on. I had no idea what was going on. It was the, it was, I think it was one of the Rick Leonardi issues of the the original Gen Genosha storyline. And so it was about Wolverine and Rogue, except Rogue was possessed by Carol Danvers. They were both powerless. And I had no idea what was going on, but I was completely enamored. I was just, I love these outcast characters. And I, at the same time, I was reading the X-Men classic stuff that was reprinting, you know, the Cockrum, Cockrum's second run. So it was, it was the issue where Corsair, shows up at the destroyed X-Mansion and the Sidri show up to fight Cyclops yes. and Storm. So even then, even in the flashback, the older issue, I had no idea what was going on. And so I was trying to connect the dots between the two eras, but um, I loved it. I love the novelistic approach Claremont took. I, I'm, I'm forever a Claremont apologist. Uh, I will, you know, I've read all his stuff and I will defend it. Uh, and it's just, it, I love that singular vision that kind of carried through from, giant size X-Men, even though he was only a plot assist at that point, all the way through to, uh, I guess, X-Men 3 was when he left. Yeah. But that, to me, was a real opus that we, we probably will never see in comics, aside from creator-owned runs that last that long, in, in terms of, like, mainstream comics. And uh, as a creator, I got to write a short Sunspot story for um, one of the uh, Marvel Voices Comunidades anthologies, and that was really a blast. And, and it echoed a little bit of Sunspot's origin in uh, the, the original Marvel, Marvel graphic novel, so that was a lot of fun. That was literally my next question. I'm going to come oh, back cool. <laughs> in a second. Uh, uh, George Michael, do you want to answer that same question about your uh, your entrance into the X-Men world? Like most people in my generation, uh, I was introduced to the cartoon, the animated series, and just immediately devoured and consumed all things X-Men after that. I remember, I think, the same weekend that I first saw my first episode of the animated series, I ran to the comic shop. X-Men 2099, number one, had just come out, and that's the first comic I bought with my money. So I have a very soft spot for the whole 2099 universe. But yeah, I've just been enamored and consuming all X-Men since then. It's been a long time now, 30, 30 years. Wee, I'm old. Me too. I won't subject my listeners to the same story, but uh, you guys know my story here by entrance into the X-Men world. And it's been a, it's been a one that's been a, a, a staying point through many changes in my life. Now, Alex, you've had a chance to write uh, a number of short stories or in-continuity stories. I know there was a big announcement even just this morning about stuff that you're doing at Marvel. 
Uh, but you did get to touch the X-Men franchise with your Sunspot story. Uh, I was going to ask you to tell us a little about that. He's one of our favorites. Yeah, no, I love, I love uh, Roberto. I, I, I have a huge, huge love for the New Mutants. And I recently just reread all the New Mutant stuff up to... Um up through part of X-Force, but um, yeah, Marvel reached out. They were doing this Comunidades um, anthology, which fo focused on Latinx creators, and, and they asked who, who I wanted to do, and I said, whatever X-Men character you are willing to let me play with. And, <laughs> and so I ran down a list of the Latinx characters that I loved, um, and Sunspot was on there, and um, the story weaves, you know, is set in the modern day, obviously in the Krakoa era, but it's it involves Sunspot going back home and revisiting... Um, the family of his girlfriend who dies um, very tragically in his origin story. And so we have flashbacks to his origin story and it, it brings, brings things into uh, some kind of full circle uh, a bit. And um, it was just, it was great. You know, Alba Glez just did the art and she has this very great animated type style, very, um, very evocative. And um, you know, it deals with the Reavers. It deals with uh, Juliana and her backstory and Roberto's backstory. And so, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, emotional impact for a short 10 page story, I thought. And so I was really happy with it. And, uh, you know, it was just fun to play in that space and, you know, dance a little bit with a story that Claremont wrote. Uh, question for both of you. What are your opinions? And this is a broad question. But what are your opinions <laughs> on the 1960s X-Men being the template for everything that followed? Mm. There's a lot of bad stories. It's okay to say that out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it. It was it was a good start, I think. Um, I mean, you couldn't have had the new X Men without the the original group to to build on. I think it's it it was the right idea. Um, I think the execution worked better with the team we got in in Giant Size X Men number one. I I joked uh, I I for Tor.com I wrote um, and still periodically revive uh, a feature that looks at the uh, rewatches all the uh movies based on superhero comics of which there are several billion and um when i got to the x-men i was i was you know providing a brief history of the x-men in the comics <laughs> and and one of the things i mentioned was that it was so much more successful when it had a much more diverse cast it's almost like diversity cells or something and but it also it it, it made it for something that's supposed to be a metaphor for marginalized people having a more diverse team made it work a lot better um, and having people from all around the world made it stronger as well. You know, the original X Men were basically a bunch of white guys and the token and the token white chick, um, and and that that muted the message quite a bit. Um, and and it never really like you could tell what reading through it that they were struggling with trying to find a way to make it work. Um, you know, okay, well, we it doesn't seem to be work if they all have the same uniforms. Let's give them new uniforms. Well, people still don't want to read the book, so let's kill Professor X, and that's not working. And, and it's like everything they tried didn't work. Um, and I think just just flushing and restarting as they did in 1975 was was the best approach. But you you needed that foundation to build on at the very least. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Oh yeah, no, I agree 100%. It's so the timing of this interview is so perfect because I have the I do I read a lot of comics to my kids, you know, just stuff I've obviously read already and one of the things we we recently reread was the Roy Thomas Neil Adams run. So it kind of leading right into this issue that we're going to discuss, but I think the Lee Kirby stuff is fun. I I I don't think it's unfair to say that 
in terms of Lee Kirby's work, the X-Men is one of the lesser works. I mean, obviously you have FF, you have the Avengers, you have everything else. Um, it's a great premise. I think, like Keith was saying, the, the execution suffers a little bit, especially as you change the creative team. Um, I will say, I think in as much as you can say a Roy Thomas, Neil Adams run is underrated, I think their X-Men run, run is underrated in terms of the influence it had on what came later. And I know Claremont himself said he he was the one that suggested, um, you know, the bit where the Sentinels fly into the sun. That was like, you know, and, and, but what's interesting is that you read that Thomas uh, Adams run and you can see so much that comes into play later. Like Claremont takes those, those, that baton and obviously improves and expands and tweaks, but there's a lot of synergy there. And it makes me long for a theoretical, much longer Adams Thomas run, because that's, that's really where the idea kind of came into play and started to work uh, really well. And it became a superhero team with its own voice and tone. And, you know, for whatever reason, I guess the, the title was just not working or selling well, that it had to come to an end. But um, I think people don't give that run the, I guess, the, the responsibility or the credit it deserves for what the X-Men came to be. There was uh, a lot of stuff that was important to later books that, yeah. that came out of the Thomas Adams run, including what Magneto actually looks like. Yeah. You know, we <laughs> never saw him without the helmet until that run. Yeah, uh, I and, will say that was... Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, it's okay. I was just going to say that, you know, reading rereading that issue to my son... And he had no idea who Magneto looked like. And so you have that moment where the helmet is revealed and his mind was just blown. And that he was goes, just such a thrill. And thrill. he goes, fashion makes the man as he reveals his face. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> it was just and, a great twist. Yeah, and and, the, and you know, the, 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 the use of the Sentinels in there in particular was, I thought, much stronger than it was in the earlier issues. And also, and then there was that, that wonderful line, um, you know, in, in the Sentinel issue, what did the last Neanderthal say to the first Cro-Magnon? Yeah, which which is like the X Men in a nutshell, right there. <laughs> really. uh, okay. Yeah, and you see you see almost like a proto Robert Kelly type character in in um I'm blanking on his name and the government official who's friends with with Trask and trying to kind of straddle lines and it's just yeah you just see a lot it is very much a proto Claremont run. Mm -hmm. uh, hot takes. Plus the art's gorgeous. I mean. Oh yeah, yeah. Hot, hot take: Charles Xavier, hero or villain? Yes. <laughs> uh yeah. I, go ahead, go ahead oh no i agree i think i think i think when written well he's a hero who's making tough choices when not written well he's just exceedingly bad yeah when we take when we take the continuity of everything that's been added later and put it into the 60s books and like in his prehistory he becomes a much more complex character but even when he's written in the 60s he's both he's the hero and the villain yeah He's it's it, it's an interesting character because he's try you, you, his heart is definitely in the right place. I mean his 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 goals are are good ones. Um, on the other hand, you know, particularly in, in, in the early issues in the sixties, you see him constantly like, like messing with people's memories and heads and whatnot, and it's really really creepy. Um, and, or longing and, for Gene. <laughs> Well, oh, well that, that's a whole different level of creep. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, but even just the way he the way he manipulates people, um, both both literally manipulating them telepathically and just psychologically manipulating them, um, and and we'll get to this in detail when we start talking about the issue. But just you know what what he makes Gene do, um, uh, to to cover up his his being dead is just Ugh. that's that's a yeah. horrible thing to do to a to, to a teenager, you know, uh. And 
and you know the the there was a great line that was in the original version of, of issue 138 when when um when when Jean Grey wasn't killed in in issue 137 but instead was just lobotomized basically uh and then both both Scott and Jean leave the school and Xavier's like what are you doing you can't leave the school and and Wolverine looks at Xavier and says hey Charlie you know the difference between you and Magneto yeah he can walk <laughs> and 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 I would have loved that line to have actually shown up somewhere, but it's 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 true in a lot of ways. Um, one of the best things that that Claremont ever did, and and it's funny to realize because it's such a it's such an ingrained part of X Men lore at this point, including being the spine of every single X Men movie, is the idea that Xavier and Magneto used to be friends didn't show up until twenty years after the characters were created. Yeah. Uh, that was a retcon, and it was a damn good one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and that that just that and the revelation that 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 Magneto was a Holocaust survivor just brought so much into focus with both characters, and and added so much nuance to them because they really are two sides. They are two sides of the same coin. They both want very similar things, um, and they both they both you know Magneto has his heroic impulses and Xavier has his villainous impulses. And it's it's you know it, it makes both characters much more interesting. We've had a lot yeah, to that... say, we've had a lot to say about Xavier on this show. We're often very yeah. critical, but I do like to lean into the idea that he's a hero who has the best interests of people at heart at the end. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I know. I was going to say Magneto's arc, as handled by Claremont, is very much like the heart of most of his run. I mean, you see it, you know, when he makes his final villain turn, I guess. Not final, but when he starts pivoting back to being a villain and leaves the school, the New Mutants, and, be, you know, I guess for the needs of the greater Acts of Vengeance crossover, it's kind of yeah. an interesting finale to to the entire story. But in terms of Xavier, I think in the original run, he's just not very nice to these kids. And that's kind of what <laughs> I had trouble with. Like, there's a sequence in the issue we're going to talk about where he just comes back. And he just starts riding them. He's just like, you know, Cyclops, make your optic blast smaller. Iceman, you've got to make your ice in a different way. And it's he's so cruel. It's almost laughable. It's like yeah, he he can be very kind and very great. And also there are just moments where you're just like, wow, Professor Xavier is a jerk. <laughs> so I want to spend a little bit of time before we get into the issue review yeah. talking about Professor X. Because it's going to set up, I think, a lot of the conversation we're going to have as we review this issue. I did a little bit of a write-up here. I kept this brief, but uh, here's, a, here's a little bit of a, a write-up on Charles Xavier to this point when we stack up the continuity. Here, quick history lesson. Charles Xavier has been keeping secrets, lots of secrets. Moira McTaggart, Xavier Protocol, Illuminati, Deadly Genesis, danger stuck in the danger room kinds of secrets. So he formed the X-Men, determined to create heroes and survivors. He's an enormously powered telepath with access and resources in the billions. He's also stuck in a wheelchair from that time he saved the world from that weird alien Lucifer, but he ended up paralyzed. He's so carefully contained. His mind is like a knife, and it's easy to use that knife to find anyone's secrets. Imagine the stress of not using that power on purpose or accidentally. Imagine the, the sheer superiority of knowing the world's future from Moira or the possibilities of it, knowing every secret you wanted to. What choices do you make when you can do anything you want, but you can't tell anybody or they'll hunt and kill you? So Charles Xavier is a mentor, a teacher, a dreamer. He's an heir to a vast fortune. He's the heir because he's an orphan. His father, who was also a secret keeper, died tragically in an explosion at a secret government base. His mother married an abusive man who had a stepson that was a bully. 
Then she turned to drink and she died. And then his stepfather died in another explosion. And Charles saw it and then inherited what he has. He's brilliant. He's a scientist. He's built machines, written school curriculums, uh, tomes of research. He's established entire networks of people. He has the mentality that in order to save his species, he, uh, excuse me, that it's his sole responsibility to save his species. And he's also the leader of a country now, the founder of a nation of mutants. He's Winston Churchill and Dumbledore and Bruce Wayne and Sisyphus and David Ben-Gurion and Dr. Manhattan all at the same time. He's also a veteran. He's a soldier who enlisted in a war and experienced death in his own mind as, they, as the other soldiers died. Uh, he let his brother stay buried in the wreckage of the Temple of Sidorak for decades. He loved and lost Moira McTaggart. He met Eric Lenscher and shared a dream with him and then lost his friend. He fathered a child through Gabrielle Haller. He lost the use of his legs. He loved and lost Amelia Vogt. He formed the X-Men while Magneto formed the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Then he fought Factor Three, which was ultimately an alien, uh, excuse me, which was led by an alien mastermind who was manipulating events into starting a nuclear war. Then he sensed the Xenox coming and that's kind of leading us into today. So that's a brief summary, but let me hear some of your thoughts on the complexities of this character. I think the challenge with Professor Xavier from a writing perspective is he's got this open backstory or was once open that could allow writers to weave in these revelations. You know, you have Deadly Genesis where there was a team before the giant size team that went to Krakoa and died. You have the Moira stuff. You have the, uh, you know, some of it works. Like I think like Keith was saying, the Magneto relationship, adding context and nuance to that was spectacular and just deepened those characters in so many ways. And you have other stuff that, doesn't work as well, but then starts taking up space. So he's a very complex character. And I think to have him work now, you have to kind of cherry pick what you're going to use and what, what you're going to not ignore, but at least tamp down to serve whatever story you're working on. But um, yeah, he's complicated. I, I find him most compelling when he's not played as the straight villain, you know, you know, just like when he's not just necessarily purely evil, but just is a complicated man who makes complicated choices. And, and sometimes those are bad. And, that's when it works best for me. Yeah, he's 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 a really difficult character to write, and and I think I think half the reason why they killed him off in issue forty two was because he was too damn powerful, <laughs> um, and and it was really hard. You know, you have to have him either you know playing tricks on the X Men or you know suffering some sort of weird thing or being distracted by something or, or you know, coming up with ways to write him out. Uh, the 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 writers of the movies had the same issue. Um, you know, X2, basically they wrote him out for two thirds of the movie, um, in order, because he's just too damn powerful and, and, and the story's over too quick if he's, if he's part of it. Um, which, which unfortunately denied us lots of really cool Patrick Stewart and McKellen banter, which was really annoying, but, um, but, but also he's, he does have this incredibly complicated history and, and also, he's a really. There's a lot that comes with being a telepath, like like you said, Chad. That, you know, especially when he was when he, from when he was younger, when he was a soldier, and when he was, uh, you know, traveling around the world when he finally met Magneto. Uh, that 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 can really lead to a serious some serious ego things, and also just you know the fact that you know so much that you can't tell anybody, um, and that explains a lot of his behavior too. You know that 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 he has access to so much stuff, most of which he can't reveal for any number of reasons, not the least of which being the, the prejudice against mutants, that um, 
you know, it's really, it, it's sometimes hard probably for him to see where the line is. And sometimes he has to redraw the line himself in order to, to do what he does. George Michael, any thoughts? Yeah, I think his ego is his biggest weakness. Uh, for someone who's a telepath, I think he lacks a lot of empathy. He tends to get caught up in his own plans and then forgets the people that are kind of falling before him. He makes a lot of problematic decisions over the years, like Gabriel Holler and the whole creepy Jean Grey crush. But ultimately, he has, you know, humanities, you know, the at the first, the foremost of his plans. I think he just struggles with his own ego. Have any yeah. of you had the pleasure of oh, reading? Oh, you're good. Is have any uh, had the pleasure of reading Immortal X Men number ten by Karen Gillan? I'm behind. I have I not am. gotten to it yet. Yeah, we're going to spend a second on that. Uh, but Alex, before I, I I continue, what were your thoughts there? I, oh, I was just going to say to Keith's point. You know, there's a reason why like Claremont wrote him out for extended periods. I think he it just made more, it made for more interesting drama to not have this uh, almost omniscient, ultra powered leader, and it uh, you know having the mutants on the run or not living in the mansion made for more compelling stories. So. I think sometimes he can be additive and other times he's additive by just not being around. One of my favorite he's modern injuring him really badly. So he can't be telepathic. Anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're sending him up to space with his bird girlfriend. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> One sending of my sending off with a bird girlfriend is always an option. One of my favorite modern writers is Kieran Gillen and immortal X-Men number 10 is his opus to Charles Xavier. And I'm not going to talk about what's happening in this story, but I am going to take just a minute to read his narration here. And I want to hear your thoughts. So I'm not talking about the continuity or even what's taking place. But the background of this story is Charles Xavier's thoughts about himself. So in, in preparation for today, we're going to take some modern continuity. Xavier's the founder of a nation. He's part of the Quiet Council on Krakoa. These are his inner thoughts from that issue. And this is going to take just a couple of minutes, but you'll see where we're going there. It's brilliant. He says, are you suspicious of me? I hope so. After all, I have done much to be suspicious of. It is one of my ways of protecting people. People should be suspicious of me. Let me explain. I'm an idealist who, ex who experience is taught to be practical. It's hard to hold on to an ideal when I know what they really think about us, about me. We talk about Xavier's dream. Note the phrasing. It's not Xavier's sensible and achievable policy. It's not even Xavier's five-year plan. It's a dream, intangible, may as well be nothing. Dreams can be forgotten in the morning so easily. I did not form the X-Men to fulfill the dream. I created them to ensure there was a world where the dream, any dream, could come true. Yes, sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them, but protect it from who? I am a father to many. In turn, I had many fathers. They were each in their own way terrible. Even the monster who killed me, referring to Mr. Sinister in this story, had a hand in my upbringing, in a failed foolish attempt to buy himself immortality. Scott and I share Sinister as a meddling foster parent. We've never talked about it, which is so like both of us. So many terrible fathers. I wished not to become any of them. I succeeded. I became a terrible father in my own way. I try to dream of a world where terrible fathers are gone, but it is, of course, a dream, and we've already talked of the nature of dreams. To me, my X-Men. See what that implies? They are mine. I called them to me, so I chose who to call. Between my gifts and Cerebro, I knew who was out there. I could have called anyone. The Morlocks, I left them in the tunnels. I ignored so many others who needed help, but who I couldn't save, not yet. Instead, Bobby, an ocean of talent barely touched. Beast, a mutant gift chained to a genius that exceeded mine. Warren, a mutant gift married to wealth that exceeded my own. Jean, 
a prodigy beyond imagining, and Scott, a mutant who had already been carved into what a team so badly needs. Then later, when I expanded the ranks, a goddess with the honed skills of a thief, a trained circus acrobat, an ex-Interpol agent, and of course, let us not forget the black ops killer. Even little Kitty wasn't a girl next door unless you lived next door to a precocious hacker of ludicrous talent. There were so many mutants out there, but I didn't pick them. I gathered people who could do a job to protect a world that hates and fears us. In what way do we primarily do that? Many have noted that we spend most of our time fighting other mutants, confusing the language of pro programmers, feature for bug. This is why we exist. Moira's child was a serial killer who could carve reality with his mind. I had a boy and he nearly destroyed the world with runaway thoughts. When Jean Grey lost control, a planet burned. And there are weaknesses of character and fortune, not active planned malice. I have looked at Sinister across the quiet council and shuddered thinking what he would choose to do if given complete free freedom and how I wish we hadn't needed him to make our world paradise. Be par excuse me, make our would be paradise. I, I'm half done, I apologize. I know this is taking a little bit of time, but it's brilliant. You're starting to understand now. This is the awful truth. When a child comes out to bigoted parents, it destroys lives. When Magneto came out as a mutant, he killed a whole town in his grief. Being a mutant shares traits with other persecuted groups, but it is unlike others in one key way. We are dangerous. They are right to be frightened. Imagine asking those Eric tore apart in his grief for little Anna, whether or not we should be feared. And by the way, Magneto's daughter is Anya, and the fact that Charles gets it wrong in his thoughts and thinks he's so close to Eric is brilliant. It's amazing. I dare say there were mutant corpses in that town too. We hurt our own, we hurt everyone. If there isn't someone to stop that, look at the X-Men and understand they are born of fear for our worst potential and were my first line of defense in ensuring we do not kill ourselves. It has worked. The earth beneath our feet is proof, but there's one key question you should ask. Why do you think I was so worried about the potential of mutants with grandiose power? I have a mirror. I looked at it. I have often thought how lucky it is that I was given my talents and Eric was given his. Know this with absolute certainty. If our places were switched and Eric had my gifts when he was at his absolute worst, there would be no humans left alive today. Cerebro lets me find all mutants. In other words, it lets me find all humans. If I wanted, I could work through them all, placing a psychic trigger in each. A decade's work, perhaps? Most minds aren't difficult. One day I'd be done, and on that day, the entire human race would have woken up, walked over to the nearest sharp object, and opened up their throats. Humanity would have bled out one bloody morning. And that's if I saw the world as Eric did then. Imagine if I were simply corrupt. Emma, re referring to Emma Frost, thinks I manipulate the council, and she's right. But she also knows that if I chose, I could have done so in a far more brutal, direct, and immoral way, as could she. The entire world could follow our whims, and sometimes I wonder if I'm wrong not to do it. Every time they act with some foolish, hateful policy, I know what I could, excuse me, I know that I could have stopped it. I am complicit. I have a secret. There will never be a nuclear war. If the doomsday clock hit midnight, all those warmongers' hands would hover over the red button and find themselves incapable of pressing it. If one tried to bypass that, those who were trained to fire the missile would similarly halt in their tracks. There is a psychic block in place. I put it there to save the world from ourselves, like I placed the X-Men. I did it with a thought. Are you petrified? Good. You see things the way I do. I am afraid of my own capabilities, because if you are not afraid of my capabilities, you are simply not thinking hard enough. 
That's the thing to understand. Mutants have been victims, but I am not. I am never a victim. I choose to let them persecute me because the alternative would be the death of us all. I am a martyr. So I make people suspicious of me so they are watching me in case I turn to even shadowier paths. I hope I have succeeded. I am far from a perfect person, but we should all wake up every morning and be grateful that my power and skill is not in the hands of one who is even slightly worse than I am. It would be a disaster neither species could survive. I know that was a long read, but it just sets him up so brilliantly for our discussion today. Let me hear your thoughts and ask the question again. Is Charles Xavier a hero or a villain? I, I First of all, I don't think shadowier is a word. Um, but <laughs> leaving that aside, um, no, I think that 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 you're right. That is that is excellent. Um, that that's a really good distillation of of who and what he is. I mean, he's a guy who was born with this incredible power. What one of the things I like about, and and this is something that that Marvel does particularly well, is people who have powers they can't turn off. One of the things I absolutely adore about both the Thing and Cyclops in particular is that they. They're this way all the time. The thing does, you know, Ben Grimm doesn't turn into the thing. He is always the thing. Cyclops cannot turn off his optic blasts. He's got to either, he's got to block them in some way and 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 look at the world through rose-colored glasses, whether he wants to or not. Um, and Xavier can't really turn off his telepathy. He can mute it to an extent, but you know, when he's that powerful, and this is something that dealt with not just with Xavier, but also with 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 Emma Frost and with Jean Grey, you know, that that's going to have an impact on your personality when you, when you, when you are that powerful, um, you know, power does in fact corrupt and, and, and that, it, that he's got to be conscious of it all the time. I think, yeah, that that's, it's almost in a sense, he has to be above the notion of good and evil. He, he needs to be ruthlessly practical because to be otherwise is, is to really fall over completely into villain. Alex. Yeah, I find the self-awareness refreshing and uh, the self-awareness blended with the potent ego and the, uh, you know, the mistakes, like not getting Magneto's daughter's name right, like just just shows that you, you can claim to think you know yourself and still be wrong and you can claim to justify the means um, and still be wrong. And I think it just, you know, is he a hero? I guess, I don't know, maybe he's an anti-hero. He's definitely not, a, he doesn't set out to be a villain. And I I think a hero that chooses to cross lines to achieve heroism isn't really as heroic as they think. And that's probably where he falls. Yeah. The argument of like, I'm a martyr and I've done some shitty stuff, but look at what I could have done if I were worse. I'm at least I'm not evil. Like they are like that. Uh, that the, the, uh, this, the very thinly veiled, <laughs> yeah, like the whole, it could be all. worse idea. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that comes across as I'm not racist. Some of my friends are black, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and he's afraid of himself, which is another fascinating thing. Yeah. So when we when we, when we look at the complexity of what we're about to explore with this man and this issue, I think the the setup of this is brilliant. Uh, George Michael, any thoughts here? Oh, I think it's brilliant. Like that's spot on. He acknowledges his ego and his weaknesses, but also I love the yeah, I'm bad, but I could be worse if I was trying to be bad kind of thing. You should be grateful, basically. Yeah. <laughs> this is the type of dialogue that makes me want more of this character, who I was, who I found pretty insufferable for several months prior to this. 
<laughs> Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Well, well done. Okay, so we're going to jump into X-Men number 65. This is an issue from February 1970. Uh, Denny O'Neill is writing. Now, Denny O'Neill is, uh, he lived from 1939 to 2020. He wrote comics for 40 years with historic runs on Green Lantern, Green Arrow with Neil Adams and Batman. He, uh, he and Neil had uh, collaborated a lot. He created the character Ra's, Ra's al Ghul and Azazel. Uh, not not Nightcrawler's dad, but like the Batman Azazel. <laughs> he wrote uh, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Daredevil. Uh, he's close friends with Roy Thomas. Uh, he's the one that made Jim Rhodes into Iron Man. He also created Lady Deathstrike, uh, or at least the original version of her. Uh, you talk about them a little bit in your Secret Identity book, Alex. Would you you talk about Denny and Neil working together? This is Neil Adams' last pencils on the X Men. Uh, it, it, which is also very sad, unless you count first X-Men or some of the more celebratory kind of revisits later on. Uh, Tom Palmer is on inks, Gene Izzo on letters, and Stan Lee on edits. Any uh, commentary on this creative team? I mean, yeah. Go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, it, it's it's amazing that such a turning point issue in the run and i guess it's just a testament to comics back then where stuff was just kind of handed out and there was no thought to like oh this is your run or this is your title as much as it is today but that denny just got to hop in and kind of do this pivotal issue like the return of it, charles xavier and kind of the tying up of a lot of continuity I, I just i wish i was a fly on the wall when stan was like oh roy you're too busy doing this let's give it to denny who's and it's one of their earliest collaborations like this seminal creative team this denny and neil iconic Batman creators in Green Lantern and Green Arrow. And this was one of the first times they got to play together. And, and one of the few times, I think the only time they worked together at Marvel. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's just wild. All the backs, the backstory is almost as compelling as the issue itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the only issue of the X-Men that Denny wrote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's you know, good. It's really good. He's, ri he's written the characters elsewhere. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's it's the only time he wrote he wrote uh for the team um and and yeah and 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 it's 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 interesting because it's it's stylistically you can tell that it was not written by the guy who's been writing it since almost i mean roy thomas wrote practically every issue of of the original run this is one of the very few exceptions and i think the only exception that wasn't uh written by uh stan I yeah this is it, it is, and it's a pretty good one. Yeah, I, yeah. I like this a lot. Um, and it's and it's an, and it's interesting just that it's it's a slightly different style, especially once we get to the 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 invasion part. Um, that that's that's very Denny. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. Yeah, uh, George Michael, I know you're a huge Batman and Denny O'Neill fan. Any comments yeah. here? No, I was just super excited to see him. I, did, I had no clue he did one issue of X Men in all my years <laughs> of loving X Men and Denny O'Neill. But yeah, just seeing this team up right. made me super excited. Yeah, and you mentioned the secret identity thing, not to plug the book too much, but it was that was that sequence where Carmen is talking about is being basically kind of given the 101 on Denny and Neil was the one like fanboy moment I allowed myself because I wanted to feel really like 
immersive. I wanted people to read it and feel like, okay, this is these names being bandied about. I can research them. But that was the one kind of it didn't get into Wikipedia territory, but it was very much like <laughs> the one fanboy sequence I let myself have. <laughs> It's good. It's really good. Uh, okay, I'm going to cover uh, the first five pages of this book quickly, and then we'll take a moment to talk about it. The cover of this book is unexpected. It's fun. It hits you in the face a little bit like the giant lizard on the cover is hitting Angel out of the air. <laughs> There's a, everybody's blasting it. Jean is kind of in the background, kind of nearly fainting once again. <laughs> all she gets to do the original books a lot of the time. Because she's the girl. <laughs> the uh, the cover says they came from space, cruel conquerors from another star. Could the extraordinary X Men save all mankind from becoming slaves of the star spawn? And uh, it's, it's a pretty cover. On page one, we except, see that except the aliens don't actually look like that in the book. That's the hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on page one, we see the X-Men back from their fight with Sunfire, and they are cranky, and they need naps very bad. And Alex, Alex and Lorna are there, and they're like, there's an emergency. And all the X-Men are like, bitch, you are lucky we even let you live in our mansion. Don't talk to us about emergencies. We are tired. Like, you didn't even say hi to us. And Bobby's like, you are the B-team. <laughs> and Bobby's like, geez, Lorna, did you forget that I'm your boyfriend? And like, she never agreed to that. And Scott's like, I need a bubble bath, damn it. And Lorna breaks a lamppost and like uses it to push all of the X-Men inside. And Hank is fucking pissed. He is very mad. And he bends the lamppost and throws it at him. And so Havoc has to black it, blast it away. Like, these are very angry people uh, in this spot. Now, when we get into... Uh, into the issue itself. You are going to learn that Professor Xavier is alive, but they are very, very upset. And uh, Alex and Lorna are like, well, you just go get dressed, damn it. So it shows it shows the four X-Men, uh, Gene, not Angel, but Gene, Beast, Cyclops, and Iceman, all getting dressed in one, uh, one series of panels on page three. And their thoughts here are very telling of their character, which shows Denny put some time into them. Gene is thinking, Lorna and Alex seem to mesh. That won't do Bobby's morale any good. Iceman's got it bad for her. Beast is thinking, mutants we are, but we also boast frail flesh and blood. This constant travail will eventually undo us. Cyclops is thinking, apparently leadership runs in the summer family. I wish I didn't resent Alex's obvious ability, but I do. Iceman is thinking, I shouldn't be uptight about Lorna's ignoring me. I have no claim on her, so why sweat? So I love her is why. And then you turn the page and Angel is thinking, every time I put on these duds, I've got to wonder if I'll be buried in them, which is no way for a hero to think, much less an angel. Then they learn about the Xenox coming. Uh, Havoc tells them there's a massive alien invasion. There is an ancient race who, uh, who are conquering planets and they have turned their own planet into a planet they can fly across space to destroy other planets with. This is the first and one of the few times that this alien race makes an appearance in the comic books. Uh, he gives a little bit of their history and the X-Men are like, whatever, this can't be that bad of a threat. You're lying. And then Jean's like, actually, they aren't lying. That's kind of a quick summary of the first few pages of the book. Let me hear your thoughts on the opening of this story. It's a little overwrought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, now, and... and uh, the the opening sequence is mostly there so to remind the the people reading it of what everybody's powers are, you know, um, as as often happens, you know, uh, the 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 extremity by which uh, Alex and Lorna have to convince them to walk inside is are ridiculous, and the fact that they bury the lead, I mean, they they give a very lengthy description of the Xenox, 
or as I like to refer to them as the evil frog people from outer space. And, and, and we spend like two pages on the evil frog people from outer space before we finally get around to, oh, by the way, um, <laughs> your mentor's still alive. It's like, you should have led with that. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this section? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, yeah, bearing the lead is interesting. I think it's also clear that, you know, maybe there was a plot that Neil worked off or Neil started working on the story and then Denny came in and scripted and there's a disconnect there. Because from what I read, just researching the issue, Neil was not happy with the final product. The cover, <laughs> I guess, was redrawn and there was a lot of issues with how it came together. But um, you can tell that Denny did his best efforts and this, it shows that he did his homework, but he just doesn't have the same familiarity that Roy would have had or had in the earlier runs. You don't have the same kind of chemistry between the characters. I mean, it, the execution's fine. It's like two great comic pros and future legends working on it. But um, yeah, this whole long exposition about the Xenox without saying, oh, by the way, Professor X is alive and waiting <laughs> in the anteroom is struck me as bizarre as well. Uh, Keith, will you take the next uh, five pages for us? Tell us what happens. Uh, well, we we uh, Havoc mentions that there's a plan to stop the aliens, and and Angel rather nastily says, "You're not bright enough to have a plan to stop an alien," <laughs> uh, which you know uh, is kind of mean. And then, uh, and they say, "No, they, I don't have a plan, but I got a guy who does," and out comes Xavier dramatically. Um, and everybody's shocked, and Xavier communicates telepathically and apparently uh, forgot how to do volume control um, <laughs> since the... Uh, use your inside telepathy. Yes, use your inside <laughs> telepathy, yes. Um, and we also find out that, interestingly enough, that Gene knew all along that Xavier was alive. Um, and then we get the flashback. So uh, Xavier explains that he... he had just found out about the alien invasion, was trying to figure out how to deal with it, and the changeling just kind of walks in the door um, <laughs> to this incredibly secure mansion because he's a former criminal and he's good at that. And uh, announces that he only has a few months, six months left to live. He wants to do something good with his life after, you know, almost helping an alien destroy the world. And he feels a little guilty about that. And Xavier says, well, you could become me. And so he sent the changeling out disguised as Xavier to lead the X-Men for a while uh, until he was killed by grotesque. Uh, meanwhile, Xavier set himself up in a bunker under the mansion that apparently nobody ever knew about, um, which, which also pisses the X-Men off. It's like, you were right underneath the whole time. What the hell? Uh, and then Xavier says, yes, I'm alive. I've, I've been researching ways to stop the frog people from outer space. Really, and really quickly, when there, there's, a, there's a moment in a past comic where the X-Men hear Xavier on video reading his will, but he's really hiding in the basement. And we posit that he's actually just like, he like raised a window and like just read his will out loud and then closed <laughs> the window when he was done. <laughs> he was just right there the whole time. Yep, yep, just hiding in the wall. The... Uh... And then he says, I know you're tired and grumpy, but I'm going to telepathically remove your fatigue, which is a neat trick. And, and you know, honestly, something I could use pretty regularly. Yeah, seriously. Um, and says, you must now train like you've never trained before. So he immediately drill sergeants the hell out of them, um, putting them through ridiculous paces to, to refine themselves for Iceman to do, project more absolute cold uh, for the beast to uh, not be overconfident, for Gene to work on her telepathy more. Uh, and for Cyclops to focus his optic blasts. Um, and Warren's left out again. <laughs> what? 
and I don't know what he did with the angel. The angel, I don't know, fly faster. I don't know. <laughs> but um, checkbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's an important thing. Uh, he's oh, come on. He's a billionaire. He's got people who do that. <laughs> uh, we find out that uh, Shield has independently also discovered that there's about to be an alien invasion. Uh, what's amusing about this is that we hear we hear Nick Fury, but never see him. We see the Hell Carrier, but not we don't we don't see here. We hear Nick Fury because nobody else talks like that. <laughs> um, and Xavier's okay. like, "Oh crap! Shield, Shield, Shield's on the case. That means the aliens are going to know about it. We've got to stop them now." That image of Adams drawing the helicarrier is so pretty. I think it's yeah. so oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's it's a beautiful. It's a great glory shot of the helicarrier, which is then never seen again for the rest of the episode. The yeah, rest of the issue. Is. <laughs> um, but it looks really cool. Yeah. And that brings us. Where does that bring us to? Page nine. All right, one more page, and then. Uh, Xavier's like, okay, training period's over, and I'm pretty sure that's like an hour later. Um, and uh, uh, Denny, Denny really has fun writing the Beast's dialogue, I gotta say. He uh, he really leans into his entire uh, polysyllabic uh, mentality. Um, and and uh, Xavier sends them off. Uh, Each microsecond you delay the invasion will be invaluable. And and so they go off and floor it in the jet and head off to stop the aliens. On this page, we get uh, we get both sides of the ridiculousness of sound effects. Beast throws a robot into another robot and it goes wank. It does. <laughs> and then a, a ship. That, takes that's off a sound effect that has aged very badly. Yes. And yeah. A ship takes off into space and we get krazoosh. <laughs> what I especially love about krazoosh is that the kra is sort of like tilted funny. Yeah. It's like it's not it's not in a straight line. It just the, the KRA is at a weird angle to the rest of the sound effect. It's very strange. Um, uh, Alex, keep us going. All right. So now we uh, we get to hop into the Xenox and we get some sense of what they're after. And they're just you know using kind of typical uh, alien conqueror platitudes. They don't matter. We'll destroy <laughs> them. Um, and then they discover they discover that the X Men ship, which has some kind of psychic or you know, shields has bypassed their initial defenses and uh, they start shooting at them. And you get, uh, you get the idea that this is why Xavier hid himself in the basement for so long so that he could put this shield around the ship. Yeah, you have to hope that this is where it's paying off. But he's kind of kind of getting yeah. them on the on the ship, and um, uh, so they dodge a few more missiles and manage to connect with the over the bigger Zanok ship and somehow drill their way in <laughs> into the ship's hull and. Uh, come into contact with this giant green monster that I think is supposed to evoke the monster on the cover, but uh, for whatever reason, the face of this monster does not look like a Neil Adams drawing, and I know that there was some some griping about stuff getting redrawn, and so Iceman and Beast go toe-to-toe, and Cyclops cuts loose and, and really hurts this uh, Godzilla-esque monster, and uh, then we cut to a newscast where uh, we're starting to see the effects of the Xenox invasion, which involves their planet inching closer to earth and disrupting the gravitational pull of the, the solar system. And um, we have a scientific, a scientist kind of elaborate a little bit, exposit a bit about what's happening. And then we cut back to the Xenox ship where we see they've encountered quote unquote minor resistance, i.e. the X-Men, but they don't see it as a big deal and they're on their way. Um, and you have some kind of grandstanding by their leader. You know, this is going to be a happy day when we uh, finally take over the planet earth. Um, let me see here. 
And then things start to get a little more problematic. They've disabled their guardian beast, so some alarms have gone off, and the beast and Iceman are continuing their offensive, and we're seeing the Xanox... Stop me if I'm going to f- too fast, but we see, we see the Xanox kind of call in the uh, the backups, and some more foot soldiers engage the beast and Iceman, and the battle continues, and Professor X is getting a little worried. His X-Men are weakening, uh, and he's not nearly as strong as he'd hoped he's be, he'd be after his uh, kind of self-imposed quarantine and all his time spent trying to uh, prep for this battle. So he tells Lorna to ready herself, because she's going to be key to the, the win here. And this has got to be one of the coolest Neil Adams pages sequences I've ever seen. And uh, while reading it to my son who never really interjects, he's so like hypnotized by stuff like this. He was like, that is a really cool drawing (laughs) like this two page spread where professor Xavier is basically tapping into the will and mental willpower of the entire planet earth to use as a weapon. And so we get this very cool montage where you see Xavier's floating head and different people that he's reaching out to and connecting with, including um, this off-kilter FF lineup, which doesn't include the Invisible Girl or Invisible Woman, but Crystal in that role. And he's basically, you know, he's kind of running through how he selects people. He rejects some people. He taps into some other heroic people. I, My understanding is basically to kind of arm up mentally and use their mental powers to augment his own in his battle with the Xanox. Um now my Kindle viewer went blank, so. Oh, no, you're great. I want to read this uh, this narrative as he's reaching out. And we do get a, a good sense of the multiculturalism. There's a lot of people of color who show up yeah. as they yeah. were scanning yeah, the, yeah. World's, uh, the world's minds, which is not something you often see in the 60s. Uh, with superhuman will, Charles Xavier forces his mind out away. His questing thoughts range over the entire surface of the world, probing, searching, questioning, demanding, seeking kindred spirits, men and women of goodwill, human beings who have in good measure the single trait he desperately needs, compassion, for it is only this which will best the enemy. Some he rejects immediately because to distract them would be to cause irreparable harm, surgeons, pilots. Others he dismisses because he finds their psyches tainted with hatred, cruelty, prejudice, love of death, the sickness which the Xenox cherish. Then miraculously, these other multitudes of individuals become joined, uh, become as one person. Beautifully done. Like it, this, this page is incredible. Easily my favorite in the whole book. Uh, thoughts on this section so far before we wrap the story up? Well, it sets everything up nicely. It, and, and we have a better special effects when, when, when the beast hits the bad guy and it goes thwop. Yeah. <laughs> thwop is a classic. You can never go wrong with thwop. Um, I mean, it's, 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 the, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the sister cousin to quit. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, right. Well, Thwip, Thwip is Spider-Man's. That's that. That's web shooters. You got you Thwip, Thwip is a good, uh, good copy and paste option that you just have, you know, yeah. at the ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's all it's all set up, really. I mean, it, this is basically you know establishing the threat and and them starting to fight it. So it's 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 get it's getting it's getting all the plot pieces in place, more or less. What yeah, and you get you get a clue as to what the bigger plan might be with Lorna and his that montage is just beautiful, yeah. and so it yeah. it kind of makes up for the more mundane parts of the plot, which is just like you know alien posturing, battling, getting the pieces in place, and then you get this wonderful payoff of Xavier like basically joining minds with the entire planet, which I've I had never seen him do before I read this book. When I was a kid reading, I, also, comics, I like the fact I like the fact that that it shows. Both with with the shield response 
and then the newscast, and then and then him reaching out. So often when when superheroes save the world, all we see are the superheroes and the bad guys they're saving the world from, and we don't get a sense of the larger context. A really good example of this done badly is actually the Factor 3 storyline yeah. that first introduced the Changeling, where you never really got the sense of global stakes. They talked about it, but you didn't really see it. Here you really do get a sense that this is a global threat. Um, when, I was, when I was a kid reading comics, I would always wonder, if they're facing this world-destroying threat, why aren't the Avengers and the Fantastic right. Four going up? And this one does a good example of kind of making it feel like it's a, it's a shared universe. Uh, yeah. Even just with one panel or one line of dialogue, you can clear that up. Uh, George Michael, get us through the end of the book. What happens next? All right. So, Xavier, having tapped into the goodwill of everyone on Earth, then sets up the rest of his plan there. Um, Lorna um, then redirects basically i don't know how magnets that's how they work i guess directs this <laughs> to jean gray so basically uh beast and angel are create uh, like uh, pause, pause really quickly, pause really um, in, in the krakowin era they have made a huge thing out of mutant circuits the idea of you using your powers in conjunction with someone else to create a different effect the mutant resurrection protocol comes from that and the fastball, the fastball special is listed as kind of the classic version. You've got a guy with yeah. super strength and a guy with claws. This is one of the coolest mutant circuits from the X Men. Yeah. They're using their definitely more complex than the fastball special. So yeah, you, yeah. Have, you have uh, Beast and Angel with guns, basically keeping everyone away from the rest of the crew. I don't understand. Are they in Death Valley now? They were up on the ship, and now I, they're down on the ground again. I think. I think so. they're still on the ship, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, well. The Xanox, the Xanox are at the South Pole, and Xavier's, Xavier's telling them to direct toward Death Valley. But yeah, yeah, it's a little confusing there. But anyway, then you get this uh, this link up. Uh, so you have Gene, Havoc, Iceman, and Cyclops. Lorna is directing the goodwill of everyone on Earth to Gene, who is then channeling it into Alex, who is using his cosmic powers to fuel Cyclops, who is now shooting at Death Valley, I guess, from the ship. And then Iceman is using his powers to cool down Cyclops because he's channeling so much energy. So Cyclops is channeling this love laser beam at Death Valley. Um, you see, again, all the different on the left. And it's really well set up. On the left, you see this little boy and this woman in Africa channeling their goodwill. And then you see in the middle Cyclops shooting this love laser beam. And then on the right, you see the Xenox, who are not used to feeling love and compassion and it hurts them um and then it continues you just get the agony of the uh Zanox on the right side and then all these people from all around the world um their will combined via professor x and cyclops shooting um eventually uh the Zanox is too much for them to handle so they're like okay we're out they yeet um <laughs> Finally, Professor X is like, we did it. Uh, victory's ours and humanities, and everyone kind of is released. You see this great panel of everyone around the world again, touching their heads, and uh, Professor X releases them, and he says, go, and God bless. And then he collapses. Um, Polaris is by his side. Um, X-Men jump in their ship and come back, and um, yeah, that basically wraps up the thing. Really well, beautifully done with the linking and the gravity of the situation. And the laser beam of love. Uh, Continuity-wise, this goes into next issue where a Xavier is so exhausted that they need the Hulk to use his 
gamma ray exhaustion machine to help. It's Bruce Banner's really. It's not the Hulk. <laughs> and then, the this is when he projects his thoughts out to defeat the Xenox like this. This is also the moment Claremont picks up on later. Lilandra is out in space and she senses this. And that's what causes her to come to Earth for help, uh, which is a cool continuity dive. It's uh, a very Care Bears conclusion to to the issue, which is not a <laughs> not a criticism. It's very much like we all have to work together to solve this big problem. And I love the cliffhanger of him collapsing. The payoff of the next issue does not match that cliffhanger. No. Like, it definitely uh, you almost want to leave that dangling and have this be the series finale. It's a better series finale, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, as and, we're and, to, oh, I'm sorry. Keep, go ahead. I, I just want to say that Love Laser Beam is the name of my next band. Yeah. But. Um, the the that that two page sequence is one of my absolute favorites. I just I love that on so many different levels. Um, although I re- looking at it just now, I noticed something that I never noticed before, um, which which kind of is slightly problematic. Xavier was talking about how he uh, didn't want to include anybody who was you know uh, their psyche is tainted with hatred, cruelty, prejudice, yeah, yeah, etc. And yet one of the guys we see on the left-hand side of the page has a bandolier. Oh, yeah. Just... <laughs> but maybe he's just a nice guy with a bandolier. He's, he's a nice guy. But, but the, the, the diversity you see, you see a little kid, you see, you know, an African woman, you see a Middle Eastern guy, you see a Native American. It, it's, and then, you know, people you really do get the sense that it's the entire world. Yeah. Or people from the entire world, because he's, he's, he's including certain people. Uh, and it's just, it's beautifully set up you know with the with the the three the the three panel structure uh well six, the six panel structure on each of those two pages um just an absolute i mean that that's what that's what comics are good at you know um that kind of of visual storytelling which is which is really unique to comics um and denny in particular has always been good about doing that sort of thing as has as has neil adams um you know, the, making use of the form to, to make your story more effective. And just the repetition of of, of Gene, Alex, Scott, and, and Bobby in the middle there, just, you know, doing their thing, uh, shooting off the, the love laser beam, which is what I'm always going to call that now. Um, uh, and, then, and then having the Xenox on the right. It's, it's, it's a beautiful sequence. It's, no, it's so beautiful. Hank and Warren got to have a snack break during all of this, but the mutants yeah. here is really cool. And Gene and Lorna, who are often the bit players, are two huge parts of this. I love that Lorna finally got one thing to do in the 1960s, Rod, and it was kind of <laughs> to saving the day. It was, it was. Yeah, I always, I always find it fascinating when people say Havoc and Lor- and Polaris were on the team because they really weren't. You know, they really didn't do much. They were kind of like the B team, and Havoc didn't join, quote unquote, until. The mid, I guess, the first chunk of the Thomas Adams run, and by the, and then he's just kind of hanging around. So, yeah, it was good to see her have a role, and it was just, I mean, these characters were not. Ne- you could make a case that this is the most beautiful they were ever rendered. You know, just Neil's, he gives each of them a distinct look and personality and vibe, and it's just really, you know, I don't know if it could have worked with anybody else drawing it. Now, the Xenox do come back. We are going to spend some time with them on this show in a couple of modern stories that are set right after this one. In uh, Fantastic Four, the world's greatest comic magazine, as well as in X-Men, The Hidden Years. And we're going to cover both those stories in the next few months on this show. So we'll have more to say about these kind of bit aliens in a minute. But this was a good issue. I really enjoyed reading this again. I think it's one of the best of the 60s comics. 
Uh, Alex, uh, did you have any? Uh, well, I, I love first of all hearing about you reading this to your kid. That's something oh, yeah. I like to read these comics to my kids. Did you have any thoughts, kind of a, upon conclusion here, of just what it was like to revisit this story? Yeah, I think it is a good issue. I think obviously it's it's beautiful and it's a great you know visually, stylistically. Neil does some really fascinating stuff with panel structures and layouts, as he often does. Uh, I'm not, you know, I think that I think Denny did his best, but it is, it's not as smooth as what Roy probably would have done in terms of just like being familiar with the characters. But I mean, then you're just kind of, you're subbing in Joe Montana for like Tom Brady, you know, like, it's like, <laughs> you're too great. It's like, you're, you're, you know, I can't really complain. It is a great issue. I, I do think the next issue, as much as I love Sal Buscema and, and Roy together, it just doesn't, it feels like an epilogue, an unnecessary epilogue. You almost want the book to end here. And, um, I think this run is just fantastic. It's one of my favorite X-Men runs. And and I say this as a huge, like, Claremont obsessive. Like, it just, like, holds up so well. It's pretty. It could have been 100 pages, and I wouldn't have Yeah, I would have kept going. And then, Keith, this is one of the issues I know that you used so indelibly for your research into the Changeling. And I know you've written a million things, and we're picking this one story because it's an X-Men show. But That's fine. Uh, you did such a good job with that Changeling story, man. I really loved it. Uh, what were your thoughts on revisiting this issue? Um... It's funny because the last time I, I I read the issue before you invited me to be on this, I was reading it for the Changeling stuff, so I was really only focused on the first like ten pages. Um, rereading it again, I was reminded of how really good the Alien Invasion story was, because it was one of the things I've always loved about, and this will make sense. Uh, one of the things I've always loved about Star Trek as as a franchise is that star trek always almost always defaults to the compassionate response rather than the violent response um what you know the the th throughout throughout star trek's history from the original series all the way to the current shows on paramount plus it's always people being compassionate and 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 being nice to each other and talking to each other rather than you know who has the biggest gun and who fires it better uh that wins the day this issue is a perfect embodiment of that as well um, we were talking before about Xavier's dream and the, 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 the dream, which is almost, which, which Xavier knows is impossible to achieve in reality, which is why, he, which, as, as you said, as we said in that issue, um, that's why it's called a dream and not a five-year plan or a goal, um, is for humanity and, and mutant kind to function together. And this is an embodiment of that. And and here, the solution to an alien invasion is not to shoot at them or not to blow them up, because that wouldn't work anyway. They're incredibly technologically superior, even factoring in that Earth has super superheroes. Um, the way to do it was through compassion, through you know, basically channeling niceness. <laughs> and, and friendship is magic. Exactly. Yes. And and that, but that's that's a noble, that's a noble thing. That is a good thing. That is. Going back to our question before about whether Charles Xavier is a hero or a villain, this is him being a hero. This is him gathering up the best of humanity and shoving it in their faces. Right, but also by keeping while, while lying, yeah, say, while keeping secrets and forcing <laughs> everyone, but yeah. while keeping no, but secrets and forcing himself into everyone's thoughts. <laughs> yeah, no, I but, think that's tip so peak Xavier. Like, oh, I've yeah. been lying to you for the last six months, but it's for this good reason. You yeah. Know? And 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 it's just it. I mean, the 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 retcon is ridiculous. It it you know it's it, and and it's frustrating because it's like they killed him off because they didn't know what to do with him and they had to bring him back because he was the only one who could do this particular story because you need someone that powerful. Um, and it and it's and it's a really weird throwaway of the changeling, you know, 
I just we're gonna bring him back for three panels. You know? I think that, the yeah, first I'm die. okay, the we're first, done. Yeah, it's really bizarre though. I think the first time I came across the changeling was like an Excalibur special where he just shows up randomly, he comes back to life, and the exposition needed to explain who he was like just broke my brain. I was like, what is going on? Like um he looks like Professor X because he was still trapped in that Professor X look. It was yeah. just it's bizarre. Anyways. Yeah. Dugan and I yeah. covered that as well in the Changeling episode, as well as the time John Byrne brought him back as a zombie for a couple pages in She-Hulk. Right. Oh, right. <laughs> yes. I'm um, curious to listen to the Hidden Years stuff, because I did the weird thing of when I reread the, this arc, I then rolled right into the Hidden Years, and it's it's an interesting experience, I'll say. <laughs> we, uh, we have some really cool episodes. I, I usually plan this show, as you guys know, about three months ahead. So I've got mm. several of the early issues of the Hidden Years already booked with incredible guests, some cool commentary prepared on it. Cool. So yeah, we're going we're gonna to give that series some significant real estate on this show in the next year. Nice. Uh, what an absolute honor to sit down and get to know the both of you. Uh, again, writers at the top of their game who have just built these careers doing incredible things. I, uh, and, and just nerding out together, of course, is is wonderful. But thank you, thank you for the gift of your time and your talents and your insights today. This has been a- That was great. Yeah. Um, yeah good, your... good to meet you, Keith, formally. Yeah, finally. <laughs> <laughs> We've been on many an email together. Yes, and and, and, and two books, yeah. at least. <laughs> As we are are wrapping up, we're going to release this episode on February 27th. Where can people find each of you online? And what would you like to plug as far as your work coming out? Let's go in the same order, Alex, Keith, and then George Michael. Sure. You can find me at alexsegura.com or on Twitter at Alex underscore Segura. Uh, Secret Identity just came out in paperback. I have a spider verse centric novel aranya and spider-man 2099 dark tomorrow coming out in may and i think yeah the first two installments of my four-part uh marvel unlimited avengers story should be out so you can read those infinity comics on marvel unlimited and i've got a bunch of other stuff but we'd be here all day i guess (laughs) uh incredible incredible work give alex a follow also pick up secret identity i love your thank you that book was so goddamn good man really thank you thank you uh and then keith uh, you can find me online at decandido.net, which is a terrible website, um, but it, 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 it conveniently links to all the various places you can cyberstalk me. Uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, uh, I have a blog, because I still do that, because I'm old. Um, and uh, I'm also have a, I also have a YouTube channel where I do readings of my short fiction. Um, and, uh, and also I write for tour.com. I do pop culture commentary pretty regularly. there, mostly about Star Trek and also about, uh, superhero stuff. Um, I just, uh, I have two anthologies that were recently published that Alex and I are both in, yes. uh, that are both out from crazy eight press, uh, thrilling adventure yarns, 2022, which is a, the third in a series of, uh, pulp of anthologies of pulp style stories. Um, and, uh, uh, the story, I did a, a two-fisted tale called Ticonderoga Beck and the Stalwart Squad, which takes place in the 1930s. I had so much fun with that. Um, and then uh, Alex and I are both part of a, a group of writers who are doing a shared world superhero uh, universe called Phenomenons, which was created by Michael Jan Friedman. Um, and uh, and we both have stories in the new one called Season of Darkness, which uh, which just came out as well, uh, also from Crazy A Press. Uh, my the latest book in my fantasy police procedural series, Phoenix Precinct, uh, is just coming out. Uh, and I'm currently writing a Resident Evil comic book, which is uh, the prequel to the animated series Infinite Darkness. Issue one has already come out. Uh, by the time this airs, issue two should be out as well. 
Uh, it's a five-issue miniseries, and then I'll be collecting a graphic novel around the end of the year. And awesome. a bunch of other stuff. Find me online. You'll you'll find it. <laughs> I, uh, I look forward to ordering both of the anthology books you mentioned, at the very least. And I also just ordered the Pete Fernandez first book. I'm really excited. Oh, nice. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, I'm a huge fan of you both. Uh, and then, uh, George Michael, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm not doing anything nearly as exciting. But you can find me on Instagram, my personal one. If you want some pictures of my dogs and some haircuts I do and just other random nonsense, it's at Wham Barber because, you know, my name's George Michael. Wham. Anyway, uh, the the if you want to see more of my shop stuff, uh, it's at God Shave the Queen Barber. So check check both those out if you'd like. If you're in town, come get a haircut. For sure. Lastly, I am Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private, but I've got kiddos. Alex and Keith, you're welcome to add me. But listeners, you can find me through the podcast, Grimwalk and PP like podcast on Twitter, Grimwalk and underscore lane on Instagram. I'm happy to chat anytime, posting regular content from the episodes. Uh, after this episode, our next episode finishes volume one of the X-Men, which just feels like such a huge thing because I've been at this for a couple of years now. We're having a huge celebration on the show. So we're first going to do an interview slash... Uh, kind of nerd fest slash issue review with the incredible all-star team of Jordan White, uh, Anthony Oliveira, and Josh Trujillo. Following that up with my second interview with Roy Thomas, where we're going to cover the latter half of his work on this series. Uh, and then we're going to have a Jeopardy game featuring five super fans with the theme, I'm the, I'm the host, with the theme of uh, Silver Age X-Men being uh, the source of all the topics. And it's going to be a good time. Awesome. Uh, the, the Patreon episode coming out right around this show as well is with my uh, drag queen friend, Amanda Martini. We're covering the time-traveling character, uh, the daughter of Bolivar Trask, Madam Sanctity. And then we've got some amazingly cool things coming out right after that. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Keith. Thank you, George Michael. We will see you all back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Malkin Lane. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.